Folks, if you're listening to the Michael and Us podcast, there's a pretty good chance that you're a fan of the Michael and Us podcast. Well, what if I were to tell you that there is more of the podcast than you've possibly been listening to? Really? Can such a thing be true? Oh, it's no science fiction, Luke. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. You'll get a whole extra episode every week, and you'll get a bevy of bonus content. First of all, let me tell you about some of our recent Patreon episodes. Oh yeah, please do. We did one. uh, Luke's a huge fan of the show. He wants to know more. Uh, We did one on the beloved hip-hop musical Hamilton. Uh, Did we like it? Did we dislike it? Uh, There's only one way to find out. Yeah, subscribe at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We did recent episodes on the acclaimed documentary Crumb, as well as our very first film by the British gadfly Nick Broomfield, his documentary portrait of Margaret Thatcher tracking down Maggie. And Luke, you've done a lot of interviews, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. I had a recent conversation that's up there with the science fiction writer and open source advocate Cory Doctorow. We talked about Bill Gates uh, right around the time of his PR implosion, which was a lot of fun. And you're defending him, right? Yeah, of course. Um, And just a few months ago, uh, I talked to the very thoughtful Labour MP John Trickett. We had a really interesting conversation about the state of British politics and the state of the Labour Party. Once again, you can find those things and more at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We also celebrated an anniversary recently, didn't we, Will? Yes, we did our 250th episode, and to celebrate, we did some bonus content where we quizzed each other about our back catalog. We tried to find the most obscure episodes, the most forgotten episodes, and see if we could remember anything about them. And the answer may surprise you. Before we get to today's show, we want to say a big thanks to Jacobin Magazine for partnering with the podcast. Particularly if you found us from somewhere other than the Jacobin Radio feed, don't miss other podcasts on the Jacobin Radio Network. Shows like Primer, a new podcast about Amazon hosted by Alex Press. Check it out. Well, that's patreon.com slash Michael and us for you. What do you say, Luke? Should we get on with the show? Let's do it. Watch this drive. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. A few weeks ago on the podcast, you mentioned a book that I'm actually now reading on your recommendation. Is it War and Peace? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm saving for my retirement. Uh, no, I'm, I'm reading The Great Derangement by the uh, controversial in some quarters, I think it's fair to say, writer Matt Taibbi, who has produced a lot of work that I like. Uh, Spanking the Donkey is one of my favorite politics books. And yeah, I started reading The Great Derangement. You know, we were talking about it a few weeks ago, and I was a little skeptical when you were pitching it to me because the book is set sort of after the 2006 midterms when the Democrats took back the House and in the lead up to the 2008 election where, uh, you know, real politics buffs may remember that Barack Obama won that election. And (laughs) there was a general tenor in the country, and by the country, I mean the United States and the world, frankly, that like America is back. You know, this is a huge new progressive moment. You know, we the Bush era is behind us. And, you know, when you were pitching this book to me, you were talking about how it captured this moment that's actually quite unlike 
the popular narrative of that moment. It was this moment where the shared set of facts that everyone once had was no longer shared. If the book's at all the product of its time, it's that it focuses very much on evangelical Christianity, which, not that it's not still a big thing, but it but was... But it was bigger in the Bush era, as or is more visible, we should say, in the Bush era than in, say, the Trump era. That's right. And on the left, or the center left, he talks a lot about the 9-11 truther conspiracy movement, which, you know, when you were pitching the book to me, I was a little skeptical because when I think of liberal culture in the Bush era, I think of like, you know, John Stewart, stuff that was your very, very traditional center left sensibility. But he makes this case that j just this general discontentment, this general skepticism of the media and political classes was was very wide ranging. And even if, you know, even if people weren't 9-11 truthers, everyone did know that something was up. Everyone believed in some degree of conspiracy. After the 2000 election, after the invasion of Iraq, after 9-11, there was a sense of broken trust. And I've been finding this book really resonating with me in the current moment because it feels like both in the United States and Canada. Well, the, the the narrative is one of triumphalism. There's the election of Joe Biden, of course, but also the fact that the COVID pandemic is starting to kind of, at least it seems, wind down. But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what we talked about on the last Patreon episode of the breathless media coverage about these like oligarchs who are racing each other to get into space. Like that's a particular a story of the current moment where it has this like triumphalism to it. And it's being pitched as very much like a story of this moment of like America is back and look at all the amazing things America is doing you know Richard Branson's going into space Elon Musk is maybe going to go into space soon Jeff Bezos is maybe going to go into space soon America is number one again and we have guys like this to thank the book is resonating with me right now because I feel like it captures a certain alienation that I'm feeling. Everything's not all right, and I, and everybody understands that it's not all right, but that feeling is not actually being represented anywhere. It's not being given voice, or, or if it is being given voice, it's like personified by, you know, the Capitol uprising. Like the Capitol uprising has lived on as this example of like, you know, those are the bad feelings that we need to put back into the Trump era. I don't know if I'm crescendoing to a point exactly, except to say that I've really been enjoying the book, and the book has made me realize how starved I am for something, any sort of cultural or literary output that gives voice to this particular discontentment that I'm feeling right now, this ill-defined discontentment. I mean, a big part of the narrative of that book, which I was uh, revisiting recently myself, is that when the sort of narratives of officialdom uh, are no longer trusted, but are kind of persisting nonetheless, you start to see symptoms of, of a crack up in, in various ways or various kinds of crack up. How did that resonate with you, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis today? A lot of the sorts of communities or the subcultures or countercultures that Taibi engages with in that book are continuing and have multiplied in the last 10 years. And we're not seeing as much of them in the media as we did six months ago, but like they're, they're still out there and we still feel their presence. Well, I'm not sure there's a one-to-one -one ratio between the book's thesis and certainly not at the level of detail in the present, but I, uh, I also see uh, many parallels between the phenomena it's describing. What was, what was striking for me uh, revisiting it, particularly uh, revisiting the introduction and, uh, and also some of the later chapters, was that in broad strokes, a lot of the phenomenon it's describing um, are very familiar. They're different at the level of detail, but in some ways I think they've sort of migrated from the cultural fringes into the mainstream. You know, in some ways I think you saw that the thesis of that book manifested in the Trump era, but really right in the dead center of the cultural mainstream. You know, you had the the crack-ups on the right, which, you know, uh, were in many ways associated with Trump, which don't need to be spelled out here, but then you also had the crack-up of kind of a liberal center that was completely unable to process 2016 
Epstein as a, as a political event and was only able to process it as a kind of rupture in the space-time continuum. I'm not sure if this completely relates, but looking at the United States, it was so weird to see all this breathless coverage of the billionaire space race during a time when voting rights are being (laughs) horrifically threatened, like the Voting Rights Act is going to be destroyed. And so when you talk about this phenomena of like crack up, I feel something like that within myself when I see something like that going on. But then everything I see in the news is how great it is that the billionaires have democratized the space race and and America is back. (laughs) You know who hosted the official broadcast, like Virgin's official broadcast that you would have had to pay for to watch? I don't know. Was it Kevin Spacey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it should have been. Uh, It was Stephen Colbert. (laughs) Like, like, doesn't that like on some level just kind of like fuck you up because like yeah I'm going I'm going to short circuit like yeah yeah but isn't there a small part of you that like still remembers him at like the White House correspondence <laughs> dinner and it's like oh god yeah why can't why can't you just yuck it up like in the good old days yeah well the sensation you're describing is one that I also relate to because I find in my work uh, I'm grappling with exactly the same uh, the same sort of thing all the time these days and I've really been grappling with it since January I think there's a, a tremendous dissonance between uh, well, the official narratives of everything, and you know, in my line of work, it's you know the official narratives around what the Biden administration is doing or, or wants to do, and you know what's actually going on. But you know, I think this applies more broadly, and the billionaire space race is a really good example of that. You know, the pandemic, for example, is winding down in, you know, affluent parts of the world. But I mean, there are projections that say with under the current vaccination models, it's not going to be till something like 2078, the entire world is vaccinated. There, there are uh, parts of the world where hundreds of millions, billions of people live that, that have barely seen a single vaccine because of how, you know, Western nations in particular have protected the private monopolies of these pharma companies. You know, you have scorching heat waves on the West Coast. I mean, you know, the li- the list goes on. And meanwhile, capitalism just invites you to celebrate the world we're living in with a smile. And in fact, it tells you, you know, that things have actually never been this exciting. You're living in, this is the best of all possible worlds. Like the, be- the best of all possible world. It's like, you can't have, yeah, we, we, we can't do anything about protecting like the most basic institutions of small D democracy. We can't give you health insurance. What are you talking about? Um, but, but we are democratizing space. Yeah, a guy worth like $5 billion did a suborbital flight that in every respect that matters is uh, less of an achievement than what Yuri Gagarin did in 19, 19- 1961. And in a few days, another another one of these assholes is going to do the same thing. I think the billionaire space race, so-called, really does underscore this contradiction probably better. You know, it's a better metaphor for the state of things than almost anything else, because the public narrative of it, right, is like, you know, what do these guys say? It's like, we're going to colonize the heavens, we're democratizing space. Jeff Bezos says, you know, we're going to build uh, space stations and become a, a species of a trillion people or something. You know, Elon Musk says we're going to go to Mars, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when Branson was uh, 86 kilometers up uh, the other day, you know, his message was, if we can do this, imagine what else we can do. The public facing rhetoric around this stuff is all just about, you know, this bold new frontier that's going to happen. But, you know, what is the billionaire space race really? I mean, it's a show to dazzle investors and Virgin stock skyrocketed after this Branson thing the other day. All these companies are competing for government contracts as well. I mean, that's one of the great ironies of the whole private, you know, space race is that it's sustained by literally billions of dollars in public money. But also these guys launching themselves into space and engaging in this kind of, you know, pissing contest about, you know, who fucking loves science the most or whatever. You know, it's a symptom of, you know, we've now got a kind of lumpen bourgeoisie that is so rich and so decadent. The regular symbols, the 
traditional symbols of, you know, billionaire status and opulence no longer suffice. So now they have to buy like super yachts that contain other yachts and launch themselves into space. That's how decadent and unequal capitalism has become. And we're all just invited to, to greet this development with a smile on our face and be really excited about it. Well, let's move on now to the original Great Derangement. Yes, I'm talking about the bomb. Let's perhaps learn how to stop worrying about it. <laughs> God, if I, if, I wish that people could see your face right now that disgusted look you gave me after that transition. We are talking about Stanley Kubrick's 1964 masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. But yes, we did watch Dr. Strangelove uh, for no other reason than I think the two of us wanted to watch it. Actually, it was kismet because Will suggested it to me and I'd actually been thinking about it just a couple days before as something we should do. So it was perfect. Yeah, I think I wanted to watch it maybe for reasons, I don't know. What I described in the first segment is just a huge umbrella feeling that could encompass anything. But I think I was looking for something that had bad vibes and, and was sort of absurdist and funny. But I mean, given everything we've, we just discussed, I mean, it was such a perfect film to watch because, you know, it's a film where, you know, many of the major characters, especially the more psychotic ones, you know, are staring down these like increasingly apocalyptic outcomes and just getting more and more excited about them. It's actually the perfect film for our for our present moment. The film, of course, stars Peter Sellers in his celebrated triple performance. We first see him as Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, a British RAF officer who's at an American base under the command of Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden. Hayden orders the bomber wing to execute an attack on the Soviet Union under the false pretense that a sort of firefight has broken out and Russia has struck first and now America has to strike in retaliation. But actually, Ripper has acted unilaterally because of his increasingly paranoid fear and anger about Russian communism. It's funny, like, I, f I forgot how long this movie takes to announce itself as a comedy. It basically finally announces itself as a comedy when Ripper, you know, is doing his monologue to Peter Sellers about all the reasons why he's launching this strike, you know, communist infiltration of this and that, communist impurity of our precious bodily fluids. Yeah, I forgot that he talks about, he, he gets into Alex Jones territory where he's talking about fluoride in the water. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. But the reason there's so many gay people now is because it's a chemical warfare operation. I have the government documents where they said they're going to encourage homosexuality with chemicals so that people don't have children. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's it's the bodily fluids more than anything. And he, he discovered this during the physical act of love. 
you know, after after releasing his essence, you know, he, he realized he had been contaminated. And, you know, he's got a lot of crazy theories. Another Sellers character, President Merkin Muffley, at some point along the lines, instituted this policy that is too complicated to get into here, but it would allow for a more junior member of the chain of command to to launch a strike without authorization. I believe there's some precedent for that in the Eisenhower administration. There was some real-world analog to that, which is terrifying to think of. So President Muffley calls an emergency meeting in the war room, which, by the way, I found out is not a real thing. And and do you want to know something? (laughs) No, it's the situation room, and it's like a tiny little shitty room. You want to know, uh, like, a famous, possibly apocryphal story? Ronald Reagan, like, on his first day in office, was like, so when do I get to see the war room? And... (laughs) I, I don't know if this is actually true. This may be apocryphal, but it's oft repeated. And they and they were like the war room. He's like, yeah, I saw it in that in that picture, Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> Let, yeah, let's just say it's true. That's I, awesome. Print the legend. <laughs> The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is General Buck Turgidson, played by the great George C. Scott. Unbelievable performance. And he is only slightly less of an anti-communist ideologue than General Ripper. He basically regards this decision by Ripper as, well, you know, this is this is a great excuse to finally do what we've wanted all along, which is to just strike the Russians. Like, let, let's, this is a great situation we've been handed. Yeah, the main thing about his character is that, you know, he keeps being, conf- he keeps being confused about what the actual end game uh, of these events is going to be you know he keeps getting himself off on you know how much america is going to kick ass and then sort of like another part of him will snap in and he'll be reminded that you know if a if a single bomb hits the soviet union their doomsday device is going to go off and end the human race and this doomsday device has been a secret up till now the Russian premier was going to announce it at the party conference on the following Monday. It's this doomsday device that when the bomb strikes, it will explode all over the world, essentially, and end all human life on Earth. And I'm not certain the history of this, but I, I understand that this is the sort of the sort of weapon that was being talked about at the time. Kubrick, of course, famously read like 50, you know, in his usual style, read 50 books about nuclear weaponry and the nuclear war and the arms race to get the sufficient knowledge. There's a third Sellers character, Dr. Strangelove, the titular Dr. Strangelove, who's sort of a nuclear war expert who sits on the panel, is occasionally called in to give his expertise. Clearly a... An uh, ex-Nazi. Yeah, a reformed Nazi. I mean, folks, you all know him. He's constantly accidentally doing the salute. (laughs) And, you know, one of the great comic performances by Peter Sellers here. You know, Sellers was originally going to play four parts. He was going to play the... uh, The Slim Pickens role. That's right. So so Slim Pickens, who's the the pilot of the B-52, which kind of forms one of the, uh, I guess, main uh, three settings of the film, Sellers was supposed to play that part as well, but then he got injured. And so he couldn't do the scenes where, you know, he had to climb around inside the fuselage or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he was told by his doctors that he couldn't play that part. Hard to imagine that part uh, really being played by anybody else, though. Incidentally, I love the speech uh, Major Kong, played by Slim Pickens, gives early in the film uh, as they've just processed the order. They've just confirmed the order that they're actually supposed to go and, uh, you know, strike their targets. And he says, you know, I'm not one for speeches, you know, and then he goes on and and talks about how, you know, they're all going to get, you know, special commendations and promotions and medals, you know, if this thing goes down. And I absolutely love that about this movie. I love how uh, so many of these characters that are staring down the prospect of a nuclear holocaust all just think that it's going to be like a conventional war but just like b- 
bigger and more glamorous. They think that this is going to result in some kind of conventional military victory with, I don't know, acceptable losses. And, you know, everyone's going to get medals and a promotion after. You know, he's saying like, you know, the folks at, the folks at home are all, are all counting on us. And he's saying this after remarking that if they're getting this order, you know, parts, huge parts of the United States must already be like an irradiated landscape <laughs> or whatever. And it's like, I don't think there's anyone at home to root for you, buddy. One of the famous bits of dialogue is when George C. Scott is trying to like sell the president on going all in on a Russian strike. And he's like, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing, but it is necessary now to make a choice to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. So the inspiration for this film, uh, which came out in 1964, I mean, obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis is a big one, um, but it's worth noting also that in the 1960 election between Nixon and Kennedy, uh, Kennedy ran to Nixon's right on this idea of the missile gap. Uh, and the need to, you know, manufacture, you know, huge numbers of new missiles and uh, increase America's first strike and retaliation capabilities. As far as I understand, the missile gap uh, later turned out to be a myth. Though, of course, I mean, that's one of the other funny things about nuclear war is the idea that, you know, once you get above like 100 missiles, it even matters. Like if there's a gap, I mean, how many thousands do you need? You can destroy the planet multiple times over. What difference does it make if there's a gap of a few thousand? It's always funny when you see footage of those like early nuclear tests and they're always detonating it. Like, you know, there's the one, the famous one where, you know, they detonate it and then all the soldiers start marching towards it because they wanted to test, you know, the, the effects of soldiers on the battlefield. You'll see those ones where they, you know, have a bunch of, you know, they have like a dummy fleet you know, set up and then they like nuke a coral reef underneath it. Those kind of things seem emblematic of this pretty serious misconception in the 40s and 50s about what a nuclear war would actually be. You know, thinking about nuclear warheads is just like conventional artillery, but better. You know, what if we did the Battle of Midway with nukes? <laughs> like imagine if we had this uh, on the battlefields of Europe during the Second World War. And, you know, obviously that's not what uh, nuclear war, you know, was ever going to be. As I said, I wanted to do this movie because I was, I think, looking for a particular kind of vibe and one of the most cliche bad faith things that people say about Stanley Kubrick is that he hates his characters quote unquote people say that about the Coen brothers too or at least they used to or that he he hates humanity in some way which first of all it's like so what if he does hate humanity like like who cares he's not friggin mother Teresa here he's a filmmaker <laughs> but secondly I, I actually think he likes humanity I think he even likes most of the characters in this movie I think he even likes like Buck Turgidson Obviously, he's ridiculous, but he's a sort of pitiable figure. I mean, I think he possibly even likes the Keenan Wynn character. There's that great scene late in the film where, you know, the, the army has finally, you know, successfully completed its siege on General Ripper. And there's the soldier played by Keenan Wynn, who's, uh, you know, like a real tough guy in this moment. You know, he's in General Ripper's office. Ripper's killed himself and he's just got Peter Sellers. These characters are, are so pitiable that it's hard not to think that Kubrick sort of likes them. But the vibe that I was going for was that feeling of seeing these pitiable characters against those like vast, technically perfect sets designed by Ken Adam, who designed the sets for all the early James Bond movies. The huge war room, uh, General Ripper's base also is this masterpiece of design. Kubrick obviously made masterpieces before this, like Paths of Glory and The Killing. But 
I think this is the movie where the Kubrick project fully comes into focus because it's the one that really has that absurdist sense of humor of the juxtaposition between this vast and impressive mise-en-scene with these very pitiable characters. And Kubrick's thesis is that these characters who are representative of humanity, we like them, but they're not up to the task. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I've seen this movie quite a few times, but I've always thought of it as being somewhat apart from much of the rest of Kubrick's catalog. Watching it this time, I was struck by how, I don't know, the the, the metaphysics of it, if you will, the kind of rendering of humanity you're talking about, in some ways actually matches that of Barry Lyndon, oh, which, we, which we discussed on an episode, I guess, a few months ago. You know, I thought of the epigraph at the end of Barry Lyndon. It was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. Dr. Strangelove is obviously about very different subject matter, but I think there's a similarly kind of stark philosophy at play in its universe. I want to quote from an essay by David Bromwich, which I think puts this very well. He writes, Human actions, in his view, are governed by determinations beyond our grasp. Our own approval of our actions is so finely self-deceived that the best thing an artist can do is to photograph them and let the picture show what is happening. The hidden mover operates through orders or instructions, but also by means of verbal formulas that seem to explain the world. Uh, And later on, he kind of applies this idea to the way the film represents war. He writes, the rotating episodes in the strategic air command base, the war room in the cockpit of the rogue B-52 move forward in punctual succession, but individually the scenes have all the slowness of a bureaucratic process. The deep preoccupation of Dr. Strangelove is in fact not war itself, but rather the political development of which modern war has been the largest symptom, the bureaucratization of terror. I think that's a very good description of much of what the film is doing, but I'd add one friendly amendment. For me, uh, the General Ripper character really is kind of the key to understanding the film. Brigadier General Ripper and to to a lesser extent Major Khan, the B-52 commander. The film kind of famously, you know, beats us over the head with all this kind of phallic imagery, all Ripper's stuff about, you know, bodily fluids. I mean, it's pretty heavy-handed, but it's nevertheless pretty funny. The uh, opening credits, of course, with the jet refueling. You know, the film is good as uh, suggests that, you know, Ripper wants to nuke the USSR, you know, because he's, his dick didn't work one time. But I think it all comes together, you know, in the in the enthusiasm, you know, the, the raw zeal that he has for, uh, for war. There's that early scene where uh, the British officer played by Peter Sellers confronts him and Ripper tells him that, that this is not a drill and, you know, we're, we're going to be at war soon. Soon, and he says, you know, yeah, it looks looks like it's pretty hairy. And he's so visibly excited at the <laughs> at the prospect. And then when Sellers tries to talk him out of out of it by pointing out that they're hearing civilian broadcasts on the radio, he just he just steamrolls right over. He's not interested. He, he's not interested. He doesn't want to hear it. And as a satire on you know the worst you know jarheads that you find in the Pentagon and the U.S. State Department, you know, before, during, or after the Cold War, but I mean especially during it, I feel like you know Ripper is so emblematic of a certain kind of American imperial hubris and militarist mindset. You know, his attachment to war and to mass death and to anti-communism is is libidinal. We, we hear him say things like, you know, the, the commies have no regard for human life. And then, you know, a few moments later, he's saying, boys, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. If anybody comes within 200 meters of the base, even if they're wearing American uniforms, I want you to open fire. <laughs> I, th- I think the film applies very much the same treatment to Major Kong. You know, its f- most famous image arguably is the one of him riding the missile with kind of the implication that nuking the Russian ICBM site is a kind of sexual release. So while I think the film is very much in keeping with the sort of wider metaphysics that you see in in other Kubrick films, you know, and, and is very much about the bureaucratization of war, 
and killing and, and how kind of boring and, and mechanistic a lot of it is. The film also has a strong critique of kind of militarist ideology and how kind of absurd and obscene and grotesque it is. And that's really my favorite thing about it. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. I got another fun fact about Dr. Strangelove for you. Uh, did you know that the original ending of the film, which was shot but not included, was a giant pie fight that broke out in the war room? And when I hear that, I think, I'm so glad Kubrick cut that. There's something about it that feels like like the worst kind of 60s comedy, like a bad Pink Panther sequel, <laughs> or like it's a mad, 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 mad world. You know, like a bunch of people like... Or like Casino Royale, the original. It feels like too on the nose, literalizing how absurd it is. I love how the movie actually ends, which is when it becomes clear that this one bomber is actually going to make it to its target. They're all they're all going to their backup plan. They're all asking Doctor Strangelove, "Well, well, what can we do in this eventuality?" And he. And, you know, he, he, he basically starts bringing on full-on fascism or a very Randian kind of kind of fascism. Well, he's got these guys, not just him, too, like some of the generals, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Turgeson, is also, you know, getting super excited. You know, just in the same way that they're excited by the prospect of nuclear war and they think it's just going to be really cool. You know, the conversation turns to just, like, very quickly to the most, like, absurd territory where they're talking about, like, well, maybe we can stuff, like, 100,000 people down the nation's mine shafts and then, like, have computers select the most sexually fertile women and have a ratio of, you know, 10 women to one man. Because we'll, we'll have to have all the best men down there. So it'll be, you know, it'll be guys like us, of course. And yeah, like 10 women to one man, because, you know, the men, the men are going to have to work. All right. So they're going to they're going to need women who are selected to make that work. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the species can stay down there for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, after which uh, within 20 years of coming out, uh, you know, we, we can have the we are going to have the gross national product uh, back to where it was and, <laughs> and, you know, quickly surpass it. And then the conversation gets even more ridiculous because then they start talking about the need to bring nukes down into the mines because they're like, what if the Russians do the same thing? We need to address the mine shaft gap. We need to, because what if, what if a hundred years from now they come out and they have more nukes than we have? And then the world ends, which is the only way it really could end. Yeah, definitely better than the pie fight. I suppose on the level of symbolism, like the pie fight kind of works, right? Like it was supposed, I mean, yeah. I agree with you tonally, it wouldn't work at all. I, I just think it's just a little too on the nose. It's a little too obvious. It's like th- these people are literally comedians. Like, look at these clowns in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> 